Greetings and welcome to the Recombobulation Area. My name is Dan Schaefer. The city of Milwaukee just held its first open mayoral primary since 2004. The results are in, and the two candidates receiving the most votes are Acting Mayor Cavalier Johnson with about 42% of the vote and former Alderman Bob Donovan with about 22% of the vote. They will go head-to-head -head for the April 5th general election. Joining me today to recombobulate after the election and talk about all of this is Jeremy Janine from Urban Milwaukee. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I think uh, we're, we're both processing these election results. We both have a list of things to, to talk about here. I think what I want to start with, though, is what I think is the big story to emerge from last night's primary, and that is the fairly dominant results from acting mayor Cavalier Johnson, who in this big field of seven candidates running in the primary was able to secure more than 40% of the vote, which I think is a pretty big deal. What do you think? It's obviously a huge deal. He's in the driver's seat. He's a, what seems like a shoe in although I think we should talk a, a, bit, a bit about that going forward. But one of the things, the first thing I wanted to talk about is beware of journalists making predictions, which is what, and this connects to what your uh, note on Johnson is, is that last time I was on this podcast, I said, you know, I really don't see a pathway for Bob Donovan. And guess what? Bob Donovan has found a pathway. He is in the general election. He's one of the final two. And I think the surprise in my math was just how well acting Mayor Cavalier Johnson did all that vote that we thought would be divided so we could see a couple candidates into the 20% range. Well, we ended up with one candidate with more than 40% of the vote. Yeah, I mean, the margin between Johnson and Donovan was 20%, which is greater than anyone else got in the election. It's, it's, it, was a, it was a big, big win. Yeah, I think one of the things that I really expected to see, and then it became evident, this is going back to say December, became evident as the campaign played out that Donovan really carved out an area for himself. And although the sheriff, Ernell Lucas, was running in the race, he wasn't running as this law and order, tough on crime guy. In fact, many of his mailers didn't even include him wearing his uniform. Uh, so what we really saw was Donovan be able to carve out 25% of the city that he kind of got by default. Yeah, I think, you know, when we were talking about this in December, uh, in our prior podcast, right after we found out when uh, when this election would be, I think right around that time and in the early conversations that at least I was having with some with some people, you know, a lot of people thought that Ernell Lucas would be a top candidate and would be somebody who would who would go towards uh, uh, the final two. Um, you know, and, and as we as we talked about, too, was just that, you know, with a, a, a member of law enforcement on the ballot, would that split any votes that might go to the, you know, law and order, tough on crime campaign of Bob Donovan. But it does, does not seem that that was the case. Uh, Sheriff Lucas got, I think, uh, I'm pulling up the results, so I have the exact numbers here, 9.5% of the vote uh, when it was all said and done. And the key thing that I look at here when it comes to the Lucas campaign is he finished in fifth and only four of the candidates won a ward. There's 317 wards that are in the city of Milwaukee and he did not win any of them. Yeah, have, has to be a disappointing showing for him. Um, 
but uh, you know, just getting back to my, my initial point here, I think, you know, the, the way that Cavalier Johnson has, has operated since becoming the acting mayor a couple months ago, uh, really using that office to, you know, introduce new proposals, stay in the headlines and, you know, show what it would, would look like with a, with a fresh voice as mayor. Um, You know, I think really, I think he, I think he did a really good job. And I think that bears out with, you know, he got more than 25,000 votes uh, in a, in a race that did not have a, a particularly high turnout. Well, we can talk about that in a minute too, but. Yeah, I think bullet point number two I had was Cavalier Johnson really used mayoral pulpit. He just did an incredible job of taking full advantage of being active mayor. I think that's more notable because it's really been a bad news cycle for someone that's in office. Milwaukee's on record homicide pace for the third straight year. That shouldn't help your campaign, but Johnson has been able to unveil a reckless driving plan, a public safety plan, economic development plan, a couple of other initiatives. And he's done that all while deflecting blame for any of the crime. I th- and that's not to say that he, sh- he should or shouldn't be blamed. Obviously, we know he's been on the job for two months. He's only been on the council since 2016. But that the tar and feathering that can happen during a campaign, he completely avoided that. Yeah, he really did. And, you know, like you said, it's it's been a bad news cycle. Um, and it's just a terrible crime wave that this city is happening is is experiencing right now um but like you said i don't think people are pinning that on on him uh as he's you know just stepping into the role um and you know ultimately i think he was able to you know you you look at the map our friend john johnson from marquette university law school has put together a couple really interesting maps on where the results were coming from. And I think, you know, I think Johnson being from kind of his, his aldermanic district being on the Northwest side of the city, you know, kind of that's where you might consider his base of support to be, but his, he really had a pretty broad appeal. And you, you look at some of those results uh, and he was able to do really well on the North side uh, and, and, you know, West side, throughout the city, really, other than the, the kind of far reaches of the South and Southwest side uh, that really saw a lot of support go towards Donovan. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, John made this excellent colored map that you can see it really this dividing line emerges along Interstate 94 between kind of Donovan to the South and the West and Johnson to the North and the East. But then you have Dmitrievich and Bayview and those votes will almost certainly all pivot towards Johnson at this point. But if you really dig in and go further on the south side where we I think both of our outlets have written about kind of changing demographic trends in the city, Donovan didn't have a monopoly on all of those districts or wards. Johnson actually won a handful of those wards. And looking at them on a map, I can't identify, well, okay, this ward is exceptional for these reasons. It's just that Donovan has kind of this, it's not a patchwork quilt yet, but there's, there's spots on the map where Johnson has broken that south side barrier. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, I was thinking that perhaps uh, given some of the endorsements that she had going into the race that Marina Dmitrievich uh, might have some success in some of those South side districts and wards too. Uh, but, you know, like, like you said, we're seeing uh, Johnson do, do particularly well there. And then I think on the North side too, I think he, 
you know, Liam Taylor is a, did especially well on the North side in her 2020 race, uh, 2020 run for mayor. Uh, she's represented many of those North and Northwest side districts and wards for, uh, you know, for the better part of the last 20 years uh, in the state legislature. But Johnson really, you know, I, I think I'm looking at this map again. It, it, Taylor just won a handful. Uh, Johnson did exceptionally well on that side of town. Yeah, I think we're going to talk probably plenty about the people that didn't make it to the general election. Taylor's one of those interesting cases. It seemed like her campaign compared to 2020 kind of failed to launch to me. Whereas Lucas's campaign launched and then seemed to lose steam, Taylor's never seemed to launch. I never got the sense that she had built the framework that she had in 2020. And I, I don't know why that is actually. If it's, well, it was easy to position herself as the person running against Tom Barrett and that became more difficult when he wasn't on the ballot or if her supporters all of a sudden fractured between these different candidates. But I really, in her initial campaign finance report bears this out, where had a bunch of zeros on it, is that her campaign did not have the framework and support around it that she has in the past. Yeah, and I think part of that is, I mean, she was the last candidate to join the field, I believe, right? She she was running for the office of lieutenant governor all the way up until Tom Barrett was confirmed as ambassador, ambassador to Luxembourg. Uh, so she switched gears and, and joined the mayoral primary in that final week of December or whatever it was. And I think she's, I, I think I, uh, she's only been running this race for 50 days. So is, is there a fa failure to launch perhaps, but is, is that a pretty short runway uh, to, to be able to launch? Is that part of it too? Definitely. But I think if you're, if you want to be taken seriously as a politician who's already won a citywide race, I feel like you should be able to reactivate that network and it, Amazed me, we didn't see that happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She, she, her results were that she won twelve point seven percent of the vote, uh, putting her in third, uh, well behind Donovan. Um, so I think one thing that we've touched on a little bit here that I wanted to get to as well uh, was the topic of turnout. Uh, seems to be a popular one on Twitter this morning for people speculating how the turnout, how bad the turnout is, how, how we, maybe we're missing some context on some past votes. Uh, but I think ultimately turnout was less than just about any was anyone was expecting. Yeah. It turnout's always this apples to things that might look like apples comparison. Because oh, what happened in February 2020? What happened in February 2016? What you know? What try to find comparisons in election, and that's always a challenge. What we know is it was bad. I don't think anyone can go. Hey, this this was good democracy here. We got a lot of people participating in the future of Milwaukee, and I think part of that is a little bit the polls. They they showed Johnson in this lead that might have discouraged some voting. You hit on the timing for Taylor. That was an issue for everyone. It was a relatively short campaign. It happened at a weird time of the year where it's cold. It started over Christmas. I mean, the two of us are as engaged as can be in Milwaukee politics. I suspect many of our Twitter followers are right there with us. Maybe just everyone on Milwaukee Twitter voted and everyone else missed the election. There was, and I, I, gauge, I use my parents as the gauge on this. They don't live in Milwaukee, but 
what they think about what's coming up on the election, uh, what what the next ballot is going to hold for them is always interesting. There's real confusion out there right now. And well, are Mandela Barnes and Alex Lazar going to be on this ballot? No, no, no. That's in August. Wait, so there's an election now, but there's another one out in August. And I saw one person on Twitter, Craig Frizzle said, suggested we just vote too often. And maybe that's part of it because we're voting in February, we're voting in April, we're voting in August, we're voting in November. So there's there's all these reasons. It's really cold outside. Actually, today it's like 50 degrees and wonderful, but it's cold. I, I just don't think we've put ourselves in a position for success. Yeah, it's it's cold. There's a pandemic. There's all these reasons. And it, and just, I, I think, I really think the the short runway that so many of these candidates had really had a big impact on this because I think, you know, turn out underwhelmed. Absolutely. But I think if, you know, some of these candidates were able to run for a few months and really get their message out, I think that really would have changed the equation because, you know, you think about some of these past races that, that you and I have covered over the years, like when Bob Donovan was running for mayor in 2016, like he was running for more than a year. Right. Yes, that, that race, like many others, seemed to go on forever. Right. So you give these candidates, you know, there, there's all these candidates who are kind of like maybe in, maybe out, whatever. And then we find out, and I think we were all thinking it could happen for the February, April cycle, but I don't think anyone was was sure that it was going to happen. And all of a sudden, Barrett was getting confirmed, Cavalier Johnson was getting sworn in, and there was a date being set. Uh, and so I think this the short runway really was to the detriment of the eventual turnout outcome. Yes. And there's one other thing people have talked about. Ranked choice voting has been a popular, at least Twitter debate. I've, I've had offline conversations with people as well. Yeah. I'm not sure to what great extent that alters. Like Cavalier Johnson, I think, is still coming out in front by a large margin. Does that cause a different second place candidate? Maybe, perhaps, probably, depending on how exactly ranked choice voting is implemented. But to the best of my knowledge, and I've, I've tried to do the work on this, and state election statutes are as confusing as possibly can be. It's, it's not something Milwaukee can unilaterally implement for a single race. It, it, Milwaukee could implement something similar if it did like at-large council seats for everything, where sure. there's multiple positions being held. But for a single executive position, the way you vote is going to be the traditional way to vote in Wisconsin. Mm. So when, once once again, a decision is out of Milwaukee's hands when it comes to perhaps making a structural change. And I, I think with respect to voting, I think we should accept that uniform voting rules are probably a good thing across the state. Mm -hmm. But then we look at, you know, maybe how we get into gerrymandering and those type of things in the state prevent those rules. And there's there's a hearing going on in the assembly right now that is a bit of a lunacy on how elections work in Wisconsin. Mm, what a surprise. A, a, an assembly hearing with election-related lunacy. It must be a day in <laughs> Wisconsin. Um, so have you had a chance to take a look at kind of where some of these turnout numbers were coming from, where, uh, you know, some of that stronger or weaker turnout might have been? I have not had a chance to look at that yet, um, at least in the detail I'd like to. But I think that we can talk about it in the sense that we know it didn't play out at least as one candidate thought it might. And I suspect there are more. And that was 
uh, Alderwoman Marina Dmitrievich was clearly running a campaign targeted at getting a slice of the population to vote for her and that to get at least into the general election, then I assume she had a grander plan to pivot. But to target kind of these perhaps more affluent or more engaged voters uh, early that really care about social justice issues, uh, she ran pretty hard to the left, ran a very progressive campaign. And the strategy seemed to be, well, if the turnout is consistently strong in the east side of Bayview, maybe parts of the west side of the city, then I can squeak into the general election uh, in this crowded field. And that did not work out for her. Uh, we saw her percentage when the absentee ballots came in um, very late at night. That, that went up just a little bit. So maybe the strategy worked, just didn't work well enough. Uh, but clearly her campaign didn't go as she planned it. But she, like many others, talked about the, the difficulty of running such a such a short campaign. Yeah, and I think I, I wrote about this a little bit uh, in a column last week, but she, you know, has represented uh, largely just districts on the south side and Bayview area throughout her career um, uh, on the council recently and, and going back to her, her time on the county board. And, you know, there's just a, not a whole lot of, uh, you know, I, th I think her name recognition outside of the south side and outside of the east side perhaps was not very strong. I think there was one poll that put her at just 1% with black voters. And I don't think that that's a dead end for a campaign looking historically. And I gauge this very simply by looking at turnout and aldermanic races to get a sense of what areas of the city turnout. Mm -hmm. Often the person who loses the east side race or the baby race, which she represents, now like that loser beats other candidates that actually won the race by many multiples. So I think trying to get as many votes from those areas, and if you have strong recognition in those name recognition in those areas, that could work. Uh, we just saw it clearly didn't. And I think part of that is just how well of a campaign Cavalier Johnson ran. Mm -hmm. um, wh what are some other ideas that, are, that you've heard out there for boosting turnout in elections like this? Well, making it simpler, I think ca calling the election fairly last minute and adding it onto the ballot does not help. If we, if we could have delayed the election, uh, even just delay it and still have a special election, that would have helped. But if you could simply just allow, simply, if you could just allow Johnson or whoever the acting mayor is to serve out the remainder of the term, you might get people more used to voting on the schedule. I don't know that that's necessarily great democracy just to hand someone a job though for multiple years. But I think getting people into a rhythm of voting, it's clear people when the presidential election is up, they, they kind of know it's every four years. It's, they tune in, they're bombarded with ads everywhere they look. Well, in this case, we bombarded people with ads, but it seems like the rhythm just does not line up for people like it does for those fall elections. And that's a good question right there. Should we even have spring elections at this point? Is, are maybe low turnout spring elections a bad idea at this point? It's a good question. Uh, and, I, and I think it's something that, that, you know, would be worth considering for the long term. Um, you know, there, I think there are other factors, too. I think, you know, there should there could have been more of just a public outreach to let people know uh, that this that this election was happening. Um, so I want to push back on that. I don't want to push back, but I want to I want to ask, what do you what does that look like to you when that goes right? What is that public outreach? I, I feel like, you know, during presidential elections, we'll have so many organizations that are ostensibly nonpartisan, nonpartisan that will 
say, hey, you should go vote today. This is happening, blah, blah, blah. You know, even even organizations like the Milwaukee Bucks, the Milwaukee Brewers that were going to host, uh, you know, some early voting at their stadiums, which didn't, it, it, you know, it actually come to fruition. But it's just some of those efforts, even even just using some of those big platforms to to let people know that there's an election and let people know, because I think, like you said, people aren't used to voting in special elections. People aren't used to voting in the spring. So I think if you, you know, I think we saw some of uh, some outlets like, you know, the Paps Theater hosted their mayoral forum at, at Turner, Turner Hall. Uh, and we saw a number of other groups. Obviously, it was a big media topic over the last couple months. Um, but just to get outside of the normal news cycle political dialogue you have to have something else to break through uh so whether it is you know something like the box of the brewers just as an example to run some voter information or even just like the state parties like the you know the the state democrats or state republicans to you know run voter information uh outreach marketing all those types of things like i think anybody with a platform should have been using it to get the word out that this election was happening. I think this gets back to perhaps Milwaukee's crime issues as well, because it seems like we're getting into a, a real problem of a tale of two Milwaukee's as well, where I don't know anyone in my, I'll call it very broad circle, that wasn't being communicated to that there was a an election. But are we separating, is there a whole... Milwaukee that we're not reaching. I don't mean that as a black and white issue. Maybe it's more an economic stratification or uh, just the types of jobs of blue collar, white collar type split, but it's clear that there's a whole group of people not being reached. And I suspect we're going to see that more evident when we actually get detailed ward by ward turnout data. And I, I fully suspect John Johnson will be the person that breaks that down first for us. Yeah. Well, we'll look for John's tweets on those. Um, all right. So what's, what else is on your list? Well, I think a big thing we need to be asking now is what's next for Ernell Lucas. He was elected as sheriff in 2018 for a four-year term, and I busted out my calendar, and that means he's got to run for re-election this fall, but he has not filed to do so. Last night at his event, he said he wasn't going to run. Uh, his deputy, uh, Danita Ball, is running. So for a, essentially a one-time politician, what's next for him? I don't think we know. Uh, he had a fairly lucrative job, we all believe as a uh, private security head for the Major League Baseball. Uh, so what comes next for him, I don't know, but we'll see. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but one-term sheriff seems to be the, seems to be what's happening here. And like you said, um, Danita, Dr. Danita Ball is already, uh, she announced her candidacy last fall um, to, to run for the job. So looks like he'll be a one-term sheriff. Remains to be seen what's, what's gonna happen from there. Uh, it, it's possible we don't hear much from him too. I mean, who knows? That, that is possible. Sometimes people are reasonable and just disappear from the public spotlight. It's also important to note that there is nothing legally prohibiting him at this point from filing to run again. He can change his mind and re-enter the race. Mm -hmm. I believe he did. Yeah, I've, I don't know if it was you or, or Daniel Bice or somebody tweeting last night saying that uh, he was not planning on running again. But obviously these things can change. All credit goes to Daniel Bison that he was at the Lucas event at St. Kate for the Arts Hotel, or at least was in communication with the Lucas campaign. But Lucas, uh, again, going back to John D. Johnson, who 
is JDJMKE on Twitter, because since we're giving them all this free advertising, we should tell people exactly where to go. But John was like, wait, Lucas told me that a couple of weeks ago. I didn't know I had big news. <laughs> so, uh, yes, uh, he is at least publicly saying he's not running again. Yeah. All right. Uh, should we take a couple of quick Twitter questions before we, we make it through the rest of our lists here? Yes, fire away. Okay. Uh, just give me one second to pull that up. What is the over-under on Bob Donovan's percentage of votes in the general? That's from Jay Saunders. Well, Jay, you work for a casino, so I think you should probably be setting the over-under. <laughs> but I think we have this benchmark now of 22%. Uh, I think the turnout when we get more people voting in Milwaukee will skew more liberal. I don't think many of the people that voted for other candidates are going to switch to Donovan. So I'm going to put it right at 22. I think that's, I think that's about right. I think, you know, if you look at his results from, uh, from 2016, he lost in a landslide. It was, it was a 70% to 30% blowout against Tom Barrett. And he had, I believe it was uh, 32% in that primary in 2016 and his number actually went down uh, as more voters went to the polls uh, for the general election and i think you know he, he ran a remarkably bad campaign in in 2016. Uh, he not only did he you know lose in that blowout race against barrett but he came very close to losing his common council seat as well that came down to it just a couple hundred votes uh, when he was, because he was running for for re-election on that seat that he had held for more than fifteen years at the time, uh, and so, oh, well, know. I think on that note in particular, we do need to acknowledge that he was first elected in two thousand, and then the redistricting in two thousand ten eliminated a fair amount of his, I guess you call it power base. His his stronghold wards were shifted into another district, so I would expect him to fare poorer over time. Sure, but. It's somebody who has the the notoriety of of running for mayor. Uh, yes, this is also true. You have money yeah. on your side. You should be able to reach out to people. Yes, exactly. Um, so I th- I think you know I, I would expect his number to be in the somewhere between twenty and thirty percent to just put be be a little bit more vague uh, with the number there. All right. Well, let's for the fun of it, you give me a number. I'll guess a number. Then in a couple months, we'll pretend we never made these predictions. Okay, uh, I'll go. I'll go. Donovan gets twenty-seven percent. I will go. Donovan gets twenty-one percent. All right, uh, cl- closer to the pin buys a round, I guess. Next time we see each other at a press club event or something like that. There we go. Um, all right, let's see what else we got from from Twitter. Um, yeah, a lot of questions about about turnout uh, and turnout being at twenty-two percent. And, you know, we, we've talked about that a whole lot. Okay, I might edit this out because there's a lot of the same questions <laughs> going on over and over again. Uh, what else is on your list? What else is on your well, list? Well, there is a good question here. And someone asked, did Dmitrievich take up space and votes that could have been better spent on someone who actually understands the community? Not, I'm not going to touch with a 10-foot pole Marina's understanding of the community. I'm going to say if we simply remove one candidate from the race, does the outcome change? And I, I think we can look at if we, looking simply at the data, if, if all of the Dmitrievich votes were to switch to Lena Taylor, then yes, the outcome changes. 
But I think what we were seeing, how each of those candidates, Taylor, uh, Lucas, Dmitrievich, got pretty close to the same amount. I would say, no, if you simply remove one candidate from the race, any of them at random or Dmitrievich in particular, that it's still going to be Johnson, Donovan. And I go back to what I said originally. I think the reason that shook out how it did is because Johnson just did so well. Yep. Yep. I think that is, I mean, that's it. It's, it's, he, you know, he won by a 20% margin in a race where only two candidates got over 20%. Like it's, it was just a, a huge, huge victory. Um, also on my list here, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit because you cover this so much and just, uh, just the overall sea change that we're seeing in Milwaukee leadership, not only that we're having in the mayor's office now, but, you know, we have a, a fairly new police commissioner. Uh, we're going to have a new head of the Department of Public Works. Uh, I think you reported this week on uh, another, I forget the housing housing authority. The name of the house, the name of the guy who's resigning is the head of the housing authority. Yeah. So Tony Perez has been on medical leave and he's been, he was a John Norquist uh, era appointee actually. Uh, he's been there since 2000. He has now officially resigned. He's been on leave for almost a year, unfortunately. And former alderman uh, Willie Hines, who's been deputy for six, seven years now, um, is poised to step up to lead the agency of interest. He has been one of the former aldermen that's been helping the Johnson campaign. Yeah, he's been an endorser as well. So, yeah, I just think it's an interesting time for the city, not just for mayor, but as you, if you go through all of the different... Uh, departments and pieces of of city governments there's just a real sea change happening yeah i think one of the things that you can misunderstand about tom barrett was that he valued loyalty and the lack of surprises from people as, as strong things and i don't mean that in the sense of like he was a boss and commanded like you do exactly what i say in the traditional political sense but just that he was given his leadership nature to favoring stability so we had a lot of people that were there for a long time and similar to, I will call Barrett, uh, quote, aging out, I guess, of the office, he had it for so long that the people that work for him are also at this point in their career where it's turnover is inevitable. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and, and there will be turnover, inevitable turnover happening in the Common Council as well, where if things go like we expect and Cavalier Johnson becomes the elected mayor, not the acting mayor, uh, then we're going to see a shakeup in the Common Council as well. I reported last night uh, that uh, two alder, uh, two alders are emerging as the likely, uh, most likely to be vying for the role of Common Council president, and that's Alderwoman Mulally Coggs and Alderman Jose Perez, uh, who uh, Cog, Coggs was narrowly defeated by Johnson by an eight to seven vote in 2020. So uh, she'll be making another bid for it, it appears. Yeah, I think the, the one thing of interest in that, and I will not divulge who it was, but someone that voted for Cogs accidentally referred to Perez as President Perez at a recent meeting and, and then said, well, not yet. And that makes me think that perhaps that's already a bit sewed up behind the scenes. Uh, we saw some real divisiveness between Coggs and Johnson and how that played out. And really to leave Ashanti Hamilton's name out of that would be a, a disservice to what really happened where Ashanti Hamilton 
crafted this unusual coalition that involved Bob Donovan, Tony Zielinski, and Mark Borkowski to become council president Alice Michael Murphy back in 2016. And Hamilton kind of gave way to Cogs at the last minute when it became clear that he did not have the votes. Johnson won um, by a single vote when Dmitrievich was being elected. We're seeing a lot of names recurring here. Uh, what happens next remains to be seen, but it, it seems like Perez might have an inside track based on very limited public comments by a former Cogs and Hamilton voter. Yeah, very interesting stuff. And uh, I'm sure we will be keeping, you'll be keeping close eye on all of it. I think we should uh, should wrap things up here. Uh, and as we look ahead to the, to the April 5th election, you know, the, the result seems inevitable, but I think it's going to still going to be really important for, for people to go out and vote and for people to get engaged in this process because there's still a lot of important debates to be had uh, over the next uh, two months between now and the general election day. Uh, and I think Milwaukee would benefit from having a robust public debate on the issues. Certainly. More, more voters, the better, more debate on the issues, the better it is for democracy. Absolutely. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for making some time for us today. Uh, you can follow all of Jeremy's work at Urban Milwaukee. Subscribe. Thanks, Thank you. <laughs>